This is AQR's The Curious Investor, a show that breaks down some of the most important ideas in finance to help us make better investment decisions. I'm Gabe Figali. And I'm Dan Villalon. Today, we're talking about risk. And risk can be hard to talk about because, by definition, it's something you're not certain of. But at the same time, risk is central to any investment strategy. So to help us get a better understanding of risk, we spoke to one of our colleagues. Hi, my name is Lars Nielsen. I'm the co-head of Research Portfolio Management, Trading and Risk for AQR. The risks and complexities of investing can feel like rocket science sometimes. So we wanted to know what risk was actually like for a rocket scientist. I'm Steve Squires. I'm a professor of astronomy at Cornell University, and I am the scientific principal investigator of the Mars Exploration Rover Project. Steve's rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, uncovered new evidence about the climate and geology of Mars. Even though the risks faced by Lars and Steve are literally worlds apart, they both are responsible for investments worth billions of dollars. And we noticed many things in common needed to establish a culture focused on risk. Let's start with Steve. He was trained as a geologist, basically examining rocks to figure out what happened in the past. And a few decades ago, Steve became obsessed with Mars. And here I was trying to figure out Mars using images that had been taken from orbit by the Viking orbiters. And I would look at Mars from space and I'd go, well, it could be this, and it could be this, and it could be this, you know? And I can't tell. And I just knew that if you just give me, just give me five minutes with my boots on the ground, I could figure it out, right? But landing something safely on Mars... It turns out that's extremely difficult. The surface of Mars is a bit of a graveyard of failed attempts. A lot of them were Soviet missions, you know, back in the, back in the 70s. The British had a, a lovely little rover called Beagle 2 that didn't quite make it, probably came very close. And then we had uh, Mars Polar Lander, a U.S. mission that failed when it tried to land. And that's just trying to land something on Mars. Steve wanted a robot to actually move around and do science. That introduces all sorts of new risks. But for Steve, that comes with the Martian territory. Taking some risk is required if you want to learn something new. And so you have to assess the risks, manage the risks, uh, do what you can to reduce the risks, and then you also have to accept that you are not in a game where the probability of success is 100%. In investing, we're all familiar with the concept of risk and reward. Investors shouldn't expect positive returns if they're not bearing some sort of risk. If you think about it, the return for investing in equities is called the equity risk premium. And for AQR's Lars Nielsen, that means some types of risk are, in a way, part of the objective. It's about risk management. It's about taking the right amount of risk, taking it at the right times. Sometimes it's about risk reduction. But we know there's no return without risk. Uh, So we can't just think about eliminating risk. It's about having the right risk. In any complex process or project, be it sending a rover to Mars or navigating a levered strategy through a crisis, you have a lot of moving parts. Steve was in charge of the overall project, but even he didn't understand how every component worked. There is not a single person who has ever lived 
who completely understands one of the Mars exploration rovers. These things are too complicated for any human being to wrap their head around. And that's not unique to the Mars rovers. You could take any number of complex technical items, um, you know, a, a smartphone probably. And there's nobody who completely understands every aspect of it. But you put together a team that collectively understands the whole thing. And the way you make that work is communication and trust. Steve's leadership required trust and communication with literally thousands of engineers and scientists. But when it came to communicating with the rover up on Mars, his team had only a narrow window. Martian day is not 24 hours long quite. It's 24 hours and 39 minutes. What we would do is sometime around 10, 30, 11 in the morning, maybe Mars time, okay, when the sun is getting high in the sky, power on the solar arrays, uh, battery state of charge is good, the vehicle wakes up, and that's when we hit it with its commands for the day. That's our one communication to the rover for the day. So over the previous day, whatever bumps or pitfalls the rover ran into... Steve's team had to come up with a solution by 11 a.m. Martian time. If you can't make up your mind, a billion-dollar asset is going to sit there doing nothing for 24 hours and 39 minutes, and that is not acceptable. And I'm proud to say that over the course of the entire mission, we never once on either rover missed an uplink because we couldn't make up our minds. A decision always got made. And the person who owns the decision is rarely the person who is the most expert person in the room on that particular topic, but they understand the system and they understand the team well enough to make wise decisions. It's similar in investing. Take a diversified portfolio. You could have hundreds of individual securities. You could have multiple countries, multiple asset classes. You can't expect any one portfolio manager to be an expert on every piece of that portfolio. But one of the roles of a risk manager is to understand how they all come together. Risk is really one of the only departments where we see the full range of what's going on. We see all positions, we see all strategies, we see all the different other exposures that come along with those positions, such as counterparty risk. And I think being the team that connects the dots that see the big picture can be really important. And even though Lars isn't forced to make a decision every Martian morning, by connecting the dots, he's able to make decisions early. I think a great example of that is all the way back in the financial crisis when people began to see issues in the housing market, spilled in over to issues in the credit markets, became funding problems for financial institutions. A lot of people didn't really appreciate the implications for market risk. Uh, so I think the idea of having a team that sees everything that is responsible for oversight of all risk is pretty important. Risk is something that's hard to see. But Steve and Lars make it a point to be active and visible. And Steve is all about sharing that mindset. You don't assume that the other guy got it right. You look carefully. If something looks funny, you speak up. And you don't get offended when somebody else does the same thing to you. Thank you. Thanks for checking that. In investing, it's the same. Lars finds that having an effective risk culture is partly about being visible and about being involved. I think if you have a risk manager who is not known, I think it's a pretty clear sign that that person is not doing his job. I think one of the primary jobs of a risk manager is to provide challenge. 
is to be somebody who's pushing people, asking questions, probing what's going on, is certainly not somebody who's there to be a pleaser. It's not somebody who's there to make people happy. It's somebody who's there to ideally be helpful, provide guidance, be a sounding board. Does it make you happy that you're not supposed to make other people happy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's very comforting. Let's get into the nitty-gritty. The tricks of the trade for managing risk in a complicated process. One of the big ones? Don't wing it. Our mantra, if you will, was test as you fly, fly as you test. Okay? What that means is you test it exactly the way you intend to fly it. You don't deviate from that at all unless you just absolutely have to because the laws of physics or economics prevent it. And then fly as you test means that once you get into flight, you operate it exactly the way you tested it. You do not go outside your experience base without doing more tests first. Test as you fly and fly as you test is hard to do in practice. Steve and his team successfully landed two rovers on Mars and then started driving them. But Mars provided all sorts of environments nobody here on Earth could have tested first. Where we first landed, the terrain was very flat, lots of sand, and there were these little tiny ripples, but, you know, they're a few centimeters high, they're nothing, and we could just go blasting right over them. And we got used to being able to just drive fast everywhere we went. And then as we drove to the south, uh, these windblown ripples, the environment changed, the wind regime uh, apparently changed, and they got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was, it was an insidious thing. It crept up on us, right? And as we drove through these features, we slowly crept into a regime that was outside of our experience base. It was outside the experience base of any testing that we had done on Earth. So we were no longer flying as we tested. We were just driving, right? And one day, the wheels, for reasons that we never developed a really strong understanding of, broke through a crust and we did 50 meters worth of wheel turns thinking it's driving across the plains and it's just digging itself deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole. And we come in the next morning and all six wheels are buried over the hubcaps. And, um, you know, that was, that was a bad day. The rover was stuck hundreds of millions of miles away. And there was no protocol for how to get out. This was outside the fly-as-you-test mantra. But even here, the team had tools to make an evidence-based decision. We built four rovers. Two of them went to Mars. We have two back on Earth, one of which was pretty realistic, that we could use to simulate predicaments that we had gotten ourselves into and then try to figure a way out of them. And so we spent weeks trying to figure out how to extract a robot from a sand dune on another planet. And sometimes the scientific approach takes a little longer than most people would like. Boy, you should have seen my email. I mean, this is all being shared with the public. Every knucklehead who ever drove his pickup truck onto the beach and got it stuck. I mean, I got hundreds of emails from people. You might be thinking, what does this have to do with investing? Well, systematic investing is pretty similar to Steve's fly-as-you-test approach. First, you identify investment themes. Then you test them against a large number of different risks. These can be risks that have happened throughout history, but they can also be ones that no one's ever seen before. 
All this happens before going live with a real portfolio. The idea is, once a portfolio is live, you don't want to then start figuring out how you're going to deal with risks. You want to do as much of that as you can ahead of time. And that keeps someone who runs a systematic process from having to make lots of decisions on the fly. Or sometimes any decision at all. And do you feel much more often than not, you guys end up in the moment doing nothing? Oh, it's clearly more often that we do nothing. It's much more frequent we believe our process is capturing things than having to make ad hoc decisions. Of course, financial markets are highly unpredictable. So if you really want to fly as you test, your portfolio has to survive tons of hard tests. What we try to do is not form an opinion about who's going to come out on top. What we try to do is form an opinion about what will happen in the different possible outcomes, run stress tests on our portfolios, run scenario analysis on our portfolios, and make sure we feel comfortable with the potential outcomes. Building a systematic investment process takes a lot of preparation. On the risk side, it means running your portfolio through different kinds of simulations. Well, there are two different things that I think people often confuse. There's stress testing and scenario analysis. So I think it's pretty important to know the difference. They're, they're both very helpful tools, but they're very different. Stress testing is a very simple methodology where you basically take a portfolio and shock it with a very specific, simple assumption. So, for example, what happens to your portfolio if suddenly the S&P 500 is down 10%? That's helpful because it's very simple to do. The benefit to being very simple to do is that you can do it a lot. So you can do it in very large scale. You can run a lot of different stress tests. And that's helpful because it allows you to spot weaknesses in your portfolio that you didn't expect. We have upwards of 100 stress tests that we run. Some of those are based on just historical replays. What will happen to our portfolios in a crash of 87? Or in the global financial crisis. This also applies to less extreme scenarios like the Fed raising rates. A second major tool is scenario analysis. Scenario analysis is a very highly specific set of assumptions that you then run your portfolio through, and that allows you mainly to analyze things that haven't happened before or where you cannot do it with a simple analysis. Think of something like Brexit. There are so many moving pieces with an event like that. Sure, some markets might drop, but you have to think about how things like currency and trade might get affected. The ripple effects aren't always easy to define. So I think it's very important to understand the sensitivity of your stress test, of your risk analysis, and therefore of your portfolios to specific assumptions. If your results are very heavily dependent on a specific assumption, that's a vulnerability that should be understood and managed. There's a whole other level of stress testing that goes even farther. Specifically stress tests that are aimed at stressing your stress tests. What you're doing there is you're stressing your assumptions. So in the specific case of 2008, there are different re historical relationships that broke down. And if you're running risk analytics and you're managing your portfolios in a way that depend very heavily on historical correlations and those correlations break down, your risk experience is going to be very different. Now, it's all well and good to have a plan, but in any complex process, even if you think you've come up with every test imaginable, something unexpected is pretty much bound to happen. 
despite all the tests you can think of and all the data you have, your portfolio can still end up in a place you've never seen before. We prefer systematic processes. We prefer to think ahead about what we'll do. But I also think it's important to not let a systematic process become rigidity. I think there are times when you need to adapt. It's not often, but it does happen. And if you see performance that you can't explain where clearly a new phenomenon is driving the risk in your portfolios, you may need to change. You always hear things like, this time is different. But it's rarely the case. So to figure out if things are truly different and you need to change the process, you have to do a ton of careful analysis. Now, otherwise, you might be making changes at exactly the wrong time. And the analysis that goes into that is key. Uh, because you get the idea very frequently. Something is broken. You just hear that all the time. Without analysis, without fact, the discussion becomes something along the lines of, something is broken. Well, something must be done. This is something, so let's do that. Right? That is not how you want to do something. You want to make fact-based decisions. You want to have the right decision makers at the table such that you're not making knee-jerk changes to the process. Think of something like trade wars. Prior to a few years ago, it probably wasn't a big risk you'd manage in a portfolio. Pretty quickly, something like that can start to matter, and you have to account for the new risks it brings. So there are some things we worry about where history is a great guide. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff we worry about where history is pretty much useless. Uh, so what we do is we work with some of our various investment teams on developing what our assumptions are going to be in specific analysis. Uh, and then we crank the machine. So this is about getting the knowledge base that we have in portfolio management, integrating that with risk management, and then together understanding the exposures. Sometimes there's a tension between people who come up with ideas and the people who make them a reality. In Steve's world, it's the scientists versus the engineers. Scientists and engineers are... These are fundamentally different disciplines. Scientists are, are seekers of truth. You're trying to understand nature and how it works. When you're trying to understand the nature of the cosmos and, and you know, are we alone in the universe, those sorts of questions, there's, there's no such thing as good enough. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you're really after profound truths. Engineers are inventors. They are builders, they are creators, they are people who build machines and they strive to build machines that work. And they build these under all kinds of real world constraints. The laws of physics, the laws of economics, finite schedules, uh, all sorts of practicalities. So engineers are frequently in the position of having to balance their profound aesthetic sense of what's a good design and how would I really like it to work against these real world uh, realities. Miscommunication and competing priorities between two groups is a big source of risk. So Steve tried to bridge that divide. We uh, would give these engineering talks uh, for the scientists, and then we would give science talks for the engineers. If each discipline has a real understanding of what the other is trying to achieve and has respect for that discipline, it can be this wonderful creative tension that actually draws out the best in both sides. And I bet if you sat there in our integrated sequence team room 
and you listened and you watched as that team of scientists and engineers did their job, if you didn't know who was who, it would take you a while to figure out which ones are the scientists and which ones are the engineers. Because it got to the point where some of the scientists knew the engineering so well that they played significant engineering functions and the engineers knew the science so well that they would come up with ideas for getting new science observations that the scientists themselves hadn't thought of. In investing, many folks assume risk managers have a different set of priorities than portfolio managers. The reasoning goes the portfolio managers are focused on returns and the risk managers are focused on controlling the risk. So you might think the risk function should be totally independent. Lars, who co-manages risk and portfolio management, disagrees. I think people overthink what the importance of independence is a very popular thing to talk about. The more important thing is being different. This is not about being somebody who independently can tell people what to do. We're not the risk police. What, what we try to do in risk is to think about risk in a different way than how portfolio managers think about it. So we try to add value by having a different experience, taking a different perspective on risk, and then having a collaboration with the portfolio managers about how these particular risks may impact their portfolio. And like Steve blurring the distinction between scientists and engineers, Lars does a pretty similar thing. I think it's a very common misperception that all risk managers sit in the risk team. That's not true at all. There are risk managers all across the firm. In many ways, the most important risk managers are the portfolio managers. They're the ones putting the portfolios on. We don't want to find out after the fact that they put risk on that they're not supposed to put on. We want the portfolio managers to be fully informed and fully involved in the decision-making about what are we doing in times of stress. Another misconception is that risk managers are focused only on market risk the risk that prices move outside the bounds of what you'd expect. But there are lots of non-market risks. Things like operational risk, model risk, counterparty risk, those are all essential aspects of running our business, largely because they're unavoidable. And ignoring these non-market risks, that can have some serious consequences. There are plenty of examples out there. Operational risk, you know, one of the most famous instances was night trading. The flash crash was, to, in a very large extent, an operational risk event. Model risk events, we have seen other quantitative firms essentially be unwound because of model risk events that were not handled appropriately. Uh, and counterparty risk, I mean, do I need to say Lehman Brothers? And the difference between these non-market risks and good old-fashioned market risk is that these non-market risks don't go away. You could avoid taking a market risk if you wanted to. Just not hold the positions. Uh, there are many aspects of other risks that you can't avoid. And they're required to take in order to run our investment processes. If you run the same investment process at more risk, obviously you have more market exposure if you take more risk. You may have the same model risk, may have the same operational risk. Uh, so they're always there. They're always present. They're always lurking. Uh, so that, that's maybe the bigger difference. But my time is spent pretty evenly across them. And I think most investors' time is disproportionately allocated to thinking about market risk. We could talk to Lars about risk misconceptions for hours, but we try to keep these episodes pretty short. Here's an important one, though. Value at risk, or VAR. VAR was developed almost 30 years ago to help people get a better read on how bad a bad outcome could be. In other words, when you want to know something about tail risk, 
VAR is one thing to look at. It's something that is an estimate. I think it's very important to understand that most risk analytics we run are estimates. They're not measures. You can't measure risk. You can try to estimate it. VAR is a helpful tool, but it's certainly not something that can stand alone. Not only do many people rely excessively on VAR, some even misinterpret it. Take VAR breaks, for example. They just mean a portfolio lost more than the threshold specified by VAR. Some people think that having a VAR break means that you had poor risk management. It's actually the other way around. Not having VAR breaks means you have poor risk management. Uh, it basically means that your estimate of the risk and your understanding of the risk in your portfolio is misguided. Uh, so having VAR breaks is something that's an indication that your VAR is behaving the way you think it should be and that the return experience that you, you have is in line with your understanding of the risk you have. You don't want to have too many, but you also don't want to have too few. And having none is a clear warning sign something's wrong. This gets back to the idea from earlier. The objective isn't to minimize risk. It's to ensure portfolios are taking the right risks to reach a good outcome be it on Mars or here at home. Managing risk is one requirement for survival. And Steve's rovers, they did more than just survive. We committed to building vehicles that we were confident would make it to 90 Martian days. Nobody expected that we would get six years in the case of Spirit or almost 15 years in the case of Opportunity. Nobody expected that. Anybody tells you they did, they're lying. And I also came to realize that no matter when the mission ended, whether whether it was after 90 days or 15 years, there was always going to be some fascinating thing just beyond our reach that we didn't quite get to. And that was the case with both Spirit and Opportunity. And then, of course, there were other discoveries beyond that that we'll never know what they were. But yeah, I, I, I underestimated the rovers, and I underestimated Mars, and it turned out real different than I expected. There's no shortage of things to worry about. I think actually a good quality for risk managers to be slightly paranoid. On a, on a scale of 1 to 11, <laughs> paranoia-wise. I'm going to give myself like a solid 17, 18. <laughs> <laughs> On the next episode, we ask, if machines are taking over, do investors stand a chance? So you take a machine learning tool and you apply it to automated vehicles, and you have like the ability to generate more data as you need. That's just not the case in finance and actually economics more broadly. And if you'd like to take a risk, send us an email at curious at aqr.com. Until then, I'm Dan Villalon. Thanks for listening. And I'm Gabe Figali. See you next time, folks. How is it sort of mentality-wise, uh, the, the thought process sort of the same, and, and, and how is it different? It's a really good question. Uh, you seem surprised. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then we've known each other for a while. <laughs> we thought of this analogy where a sports ref, be it basketball, football, they're successful when no one really even knows that they're there. Um, is that similar in risk where it's like you were doing your job if things are in line uh, but it's not too overbearing or is that a terrible analogy? 
I don't think it's the best analogy, Gabe. And we yeah, tried. Gabe came up with it. <laughs> I did. Um, it's that great old, uh, I don't know, it's Mamas and Papas, Glad to be Unhappy. Do you know that song? Uh, no, I'll, I'll send you a link. Okay. It's, it's, Thank it's, you, it's Dan. I'm going to listen tune. to that intently. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sarcasm meter on my levels here is blowing up. <laughs> Machine broke. <laughs> the views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of AQR itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice, and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. AQR does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of AQR as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including any direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2019, AQR Capital, LLC, all rights reserved.